There have been at least 48 deaths in Peru since early December when protests broke out when the Peruvian Congress removed President Pedro Castillo on December 7th. Former President Castillo was arrested and is being held in pretrial detention facing rebellion charges after he tried to illegally dissolve the legislature to, vote to avoid a planned impeachment vote. Clashes with security forces have led to the worst outbreak of violence within the nation in the past 20 years. Which brings us to the question of how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Jimmy Murray. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Emmett Bukalis. Hey, Emmett. Hello, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show, guys. All right, just to get started, I want to give just our listeners a general background on uh, the protests ongoing and just ask, when did these protests break out and how did Castillo himself rise to power in Peru? I'll come to you first, Jimmy, as the domestic analyst. So, yeah, Drew, thanks for, uh, thanks for introducing me there. Former President Pedro Castillo was inaugurated on July 28, 2021, but he was ousted in December 2022 and the protests broke out seemingly right as a reaction right after this. And he rose to power basically after being inaugurated as a former school, te- school teacher and was backed by a mostly populist movement. So you mentioned a populist movement, Jimmy. Was that kind of, what was his appeal to them? Was it because he was a school teacher and had a lower class background or is it just more in general? What, t- what was his message? So Castillo appealed to the rural indigenous people. He appealed to them because he never had any formal role in government. He never had any prior experience. He appealed to a group that felt like they were left out, discriminated against, felt like they were ignored almost, and he represented something that was bigger for them, something that they could like relate to. Yeah. So he was an outsider to the political class and things like that, and so he had a connection to, like you said, the rural poor and the indigenous and what was maybe seen as lower rungs of society, things like that. I understand. Because there's been such an outbreak of violence, as many reported the worst in 20 years within the nation, has there been any sort of state of emergency declared or measures taken by the government? So Castillo, once he was ousted, once he was arrested, his former vice, or actually his vice president, Dina Balwarte, took over as president. She was, um, she was appointed into the position. Once she was in, she declared a state of emergency within the nation, resulting in civil liberties being taken away from the people. I see. And is it correct, Jamie, that President Castillo, former President Castillo, was detained on allegations of corruption and things like that and, and after trying to dissolve the legislature? And this is not the first time, correct? This is true, Drew. This has happened multiple times. Castillo was reportedly accused at least three separate times on accusations of corruption, graft, additionally aiding close advisors, funneling money to them. There are resources that are supposed to be distributed equally throughout government and for federal things. Mm-hmm. So we got an interesting dichotomy, as you present, Jimmy, of President Castillo, at least, who portrayed himself as a man of the people fighting against the corruption of the upper classes coming in. But then his tenure has often been dragged and derailed by accusations of his own corruption and it favoring certain advisors. Has this been like a solitary incident or have there been more episodes of political violence in Peru recently? 
So this is actually not the only solitary episode, if you will, of political violence in Peru. Peru's political violence has actually gone back years and started mostly in the 1980s. In the 1980s, there was a guerrilla organization known as the Shining Path that held Lima under siege while under the Fujimori government. This translated into the 90s and as and was a result of the general confederation of Peruvian workers going on strike to ultimately protest government austerity programs and spiraling inflation. So as you can see, this political unrest, this political violence is not just a reaction to Castillo's removal from position. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Jimmy. I also want to turn our attention quickly to you, Emmett, on just getting sort of the inter- initial international reactions to the ongoing protests in Peru. Let's start with the United States, because they've always had a looming influence in Peruvian politics to a certain extent. How has the United States reacted to the ongoing events? So the United States has actually been very supportive of Dina Boluarte, the person who has succeeded Pedro Castillo. And this is not surprising, because Pedro Castillo is a socialist. He is a protectionist. He is not friendly to the international interests of the United States. And Dina Boluarte, she's often described as an opportunist, right? Is She goes whatever ways the wind is blowing. And if the United States can provide really economic benefits to Peru, then she would be willing to forsake the, the left-wing principles that she was elected on because she was a member of Castillo's party, Castillo's far-left party. But even since taking office, she has been far more friendly to the United States than Castillo ever was. She's appointed many center-right or even conservative officials to government positions. And although the, gov- the U.S. government is now led by someone, you know, ostensibly from the left, Joe Biden, they would be far more, the U.S. would be far more likely and far more likely to benefit from a centrist or even a center-right government like Boluarte's. Mm-hmm. Do you think part of the ongoing efforts of now current President Boluarte is her effort to like kind of quell tensions she declared the state of emergency, of course, with the protests and things. And as you pointed out, Emmett has appointed cabinet members or government officials that are not from the far left party of which she was a part of. I don't think that at all, actually. I think that what she's doing right now is the opposite of quelling tensions. Pedro Castillo is a very popular, popular leader. He was the most popular leader that Peru had, had in quite a while. In the last five years, they had six presidents there. You know, none of them have been able to last as long as Castillo. And that was because his party, his socialist party, was incredibly popular and had a you know, very wide base of support in Peru. So for her to forsake that party and to instead reach across the aisle is really something that nobody asked for and something that I don't think will help at all in terms of restoring order and getting rid of political tensions in Peru. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting opinion that you bring forth, Emmett. And it's also like worth noting, what's getting lost in this is technically with these events, we have the first female president of Peru ascending into the office here. So I don't know if that has a huge effect on the dimensions of how this these events are playing out, but it is worth noting, I think. Yeah, it's worth noting. I don't really think that the, uh, that the sex of the president has anything to do with their policies. I mean, look at Margaret Thatcher. She wasn't the most progressive <laughs> prime minister the UK ever had. Yeah, very true. I was just saying, it's just an in- it's interesting to me how this milestone comes about for Peru in like kind of like this kind of scenario, which nobody expected her to be president, because as you said, President Castillo is very popular for Peru. 
Uh, what has been the reaction of other Latin American nations? So it's actually been quite divided. Pedro Castillo had many close friends and allies within Latin American countries, such as the governments of Mexico, Colombia, Bolivia, and Argentina, which are four of the largest economies in Latin America and are also currently led by left-wing, even far-left or socialist leaders. In fact, those four countries that I just named signed a joint letter after Boluarte came to power denouncing her regime as a right-wing coup and saying that it was illegitimate and calling for Pedro Castillo to be released and restored to power immediately. Obviously, that has not happened. But other Latin American leaders have not been as supportive. For instance, in Ecuador, the president is Andres Arauz, who is... Well, not unique, but he's rarer in Latin America these days because he's a right-wing leader. And he has been very supportive of Boluarte coming to power, which is, it's another example of of how she really differs from her predecessor, even though they were elected on the same ticket. Just that she's more willing to reach out to these right-wing governments, of which there are not very many in South America right now. It's pretty incredible how many left-wing candidates have been elected recently. But one reaction from Latin America that I found to be really interesting is that of the new president of Brazil. You've probably heard of him, Mr. Lula, Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva. Uh, A lot of hype surrounding him because he got Bolsonaro kicked out. Nobody liked that. Well, a lot of people did, actually. We saw recently. But in terms of left-wing Latin American parties, he was not a popular figure. But Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva has not been as supportive of Castillo as his other left-wing counterparts. In fact, he said that Boluarte came into power legally. He said that it was all done within the constitutional framework, and essentially he insinuated that the protesters should stand down and let Boluarte lead. Whether this is, like you were saying, an attempt to, you know, to call for peace in the region, not to destabilize it further, or perhaps, you know, evidence of, of further geopolitical goals, I'm not sure. But Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, the new president of Brazil, has definitely extended an olive leaf or an olive branch to Boluarte that other left-wing leaders have not. I think it's interesting you draw those contrasts there, Emma. It seems within Latin America there's a lot of there's been a left-wing revolution or the the left has taken power in a lot of these nations, and there's key differences in opinions between certain leaders such as Lula da Silva, who has also had his own internal struggles in Brazil recently with quelling tensions amongst the divide between right and left and political violence going on over there. I want to turn back to the motivations of the protesters because we keep coming back to their support for President Castillo and the outbreaks of clashes with security forces. And I want to turn to you, Jimmy, and ask more, why are these protesters so angry beyond just Castillo's impeachment? Does it go any deeper than that? And what are their motivations? Yeah, I think it absolutely does go deeper than that. I think the recent history of Peru has been really troubling for a lot of people in Peru, a lot of citizens of all types of races from all backgrounds and classes. I think it's been tough because of the governmental changes that have been going on. I mean, like we mentioned, there's been six presidents in the last five years, and the corruption that's been raging on within the Peruvian government has really left a lot of people feeling stranded, left out. And there's been a lot of inequality in terms of distribution of resources. So I think absolutely the protesters are just, they're just, they've had enough of a lot of what's been going on in Peru. Do you have anything to add on to that, Emmett? Right. I think that a lot of that 
discontent that Jimmy was talking about is pretty closely linked to the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting recession in a lot of countries. And, you know, the U.S. has been facing that, Europe faced that. It's just that in Latin America, I think that governments tend to struggle a lot with legitimacy, with really establishing legitimacy among their people and being able to present themselves as a, you know, as, as a party that really represents the will of the people. There's corruption is, is rife pretty much everywhere you go in Latin America in the government's and I think that that combined with the economic stress brought along people in the last three years has just been the perfect storm to create the sort of unrest that we've been seeing. I want to go deeper into that corruption Emmett, that you were speaking about. And you were talking about the economic inequality, Jimmy, of it seems that Peru, to a certain extent, has always had its own struggles with severe economic inequality as similar Latin American nations have. Do you want to go any further into the history of that, Jimmy? Of like the history of the economic inequality in Peru and how that bears consequently on these current events. Yeah, for sure. I think Peru's economic inequality has been stemming since since its independence from Spain in 1821. I mean, a third of the population lives in Lima, and a bulk of the government services and wealth are concentrated there and in the other urban areas. While a lot of the rural areas and indigenous population in general of significantly higher rates of poverty and social exclusion. Most federal funds are directly funneled to the populous areas, such as Lina, or Lima, I'm sorry. And aside from that, distribution of resources. A hemispheric public opinion survey ran by Vanderbilt University had Peru having the, both the highest level of perceived political corruption, with 88% of Peruvians believing that more than half of politicians are crooked, and the second lowest level of satisfaction with democracy in the region. This is by foreign policy. I think that that absolutely contributes to the economic inequality as well. I think that the politicians that run the government and the members of Congress are all very corrupt in the way that they have their interests and they get things done for the things that they need. And without much say, the people that are left in the background are mostly the people in the areas that there isn't much going around, like the rural areas, indigenous people, people that are being discriminated against, they have much less say in the actions of the government. And especially when a Latin American government like this is experiencing so much corruption, it's it's just tough to see for the people there. So, And I think you bring up a good point, Jimmy, of like not just the economic inequality in the distribution efforts, but this is coming from a government that is extremely centralized, and much of the control of the government is to the legislative body, Peru's Congress, which is not viewed highly amongst Peruvian citizens, is widely seen as very corrupt. So when the government itself is very powerful and centralized, and no citizen has any trust of the government itself to not be corrupt, then of course, then turns into much more economic frustrations, which can easily lead to political violence. I want to talk more about the continuing political violence in Peru, if you have any more information on that, Jimmy, of how that's kind of played out among certain things and what can be done, if anything, to stop this trend. Sure. So the political violence that's been going on is it's mostly a reaction from the ousting, I think. But I think this has been going on for a while, like I brought up earlier about the, the Shining Path. I mean, all throughout the 80s and 90s, the Shining Path had a big hold over Lima and a lot of the urban areas basically spreading their views, a lot of them very radical, very radical views. 
they even had I'm sorry, influence. Jimmy, can you say what the those views were of the Shining Path? I'm not quite familiar with the specifics. Sure. So the, the Shining Path basically were against the Fujimori government. They were trying to basically hold siege over the government there. They wanted a removal of Fujimori, and they started out from the the union protests and the strikes. So they wanted a lot more changes to the government, but they took more of a, a radical approach to it. And I think just for our listeners out there, if I'm correct in this, Jimmy, that Pedro Castillo was inaugurated as president in the year 2021, and he defeated the daughter, uh, Kiko Fujimori, who was the daughter of the disgraced foreign president, Alberto Fujimori, that was in large part the one that the Shining Path and the Guerrilla Group associated with were fighting against or were protesting against their policy. So I think that's worth noting, kind of the changing governments. And now we've got kind of an ongoing battle between the Peruvian President Castillo and Congress, who tried to move him twice initially, and then he dissolved the Congress. And then, of course, the violence broke out when Congress decided to impeach him and then the appointment of Bularte. And it's all just this intermix of different factors. I, I kind of want to take a long view and come back to you, Emmett, of looking forward for the political future of Peru. What has been the response of both international organizations such as the United Nations and also human rights groups? Because in a lot of ways, when there's destabilizing situations like this, it is the people who can be harmed the most in the violence between the protesters and the security forces. Well, so in terms of international organizations, the UN has taken sort of a non-political stance in that they haven't commented directly on whether or not Castillo should have been removed, on who's the legitimate president of Peru. Instead, they've mostly just focused on the human rights aspect and the state violence against protesters that has occurred, especially Michelle Bachelet, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has called on the Peruvian government to recognize the wrongdoing that's done to its citizens and to establish a commission to follow up on act. This is a quote from her. To form a commission to follow up on actions in favor of certain victims. And that the police should also recognize that human rights violations were committed and that the state must uphold the right of the victims and their families to justice, truth, and reparations, including non-recurrence. Right? Those things will never happen again. And... So that's the UN. If you notice, they never really say the word Castillo, the word Boluarte. They steer pretty wide of that. Whereas Human Rights Watch is another huge international organization that usually does more handle the human rights side of things, has taken an explicitly political stance on it. They say the removal of Castillo was a a successful attempt to wrest the power of government away from a leader democratically elected by the people and that is very likely to further undermine democratic norms in the country. So while the UN has decided not to comment on the political aspect of it or on the question of who should lead Peru, Human Rights Watch has, and actually so has the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, another large human rights group which was actually invited to Peru by the Peruvian government, Boluarte's government, after the detainment of... um, of Castillo to, there's a quote from them, obtain information about the events that followed the declaration of the permanent moral incompetence of former President Pedro Castillo Torones after he tried to stage a coup d'etat on December 7th. So right there you have how the Boluarte government sees Castillo and his attempt to remain in power as a coup d'etat 
and one that is indicative of permanent moral incompetence. So it seems to seems to me, I mean, what you're trying to say is that a lot of these um, human rights organizations or the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights are trying to stay apolitical about the situation and focus on, in general, ensuring that any of the victims affected by the ongoing violence are reassured that there's recognition of wrongdoing by those officials or people involved, that there's no reoccurrence of this. But it seems like there's to a certain extent, that's all they can do or all that they have done and things like that. Right, because, I mean, there's two questions here. It's like, was something done wrong to the government, you know, to Pedro Castillo, and was something wrong done to the people? And by acknowledging or by pushing the issue that something wrong was done to the government, they might inadvertently cause more protests, more violence, and more damage to the people of Peru who have already been deeply harmed by these events. So I think that the UN is trying to play it safe. I think it's a pretty smart strategy. Yeah. And I think that looking at, like when I tried to frame the question earlier of like a path forward for this and what is the political future of Peru, if there's going to be a beneficial future for the people, it has to be framing the way and sort of repairing the divide between government officials and citizens. And that's not going to be an easy road back. The long-term corruption that's been inherent within many of the economic systems in Peru What's been going on in Peru, if the ascension of Bolivarte to power, if that is indicative of the Peruvian government going forward, I don't think there's going to be any change anytime soon. I think that it demonstrates that most of the government, you know, does not give a hoot about about democratic values, about the will of the people, and I think that there's just going to be another Bolivarte to replace her once her time is up. I don't think that... Um, unless there is a real movement for change and for permanent, well-functioning democracy in Peru, I think that this is just going to happen again and again. Yeah. You have anything to add on to that, Jimmy, or looking towards like the political future of Peru? No, I completely agree with Emmett on this one. I, I think that the establishment they have right now is, is just not going to work out, especially for the people. The people recognize that Baluarte is not their future. They understand that Baluarte is the one that is taking away their civil liberties at this time and just letting the, the violence continue. They recognize that Baluarte is letting the police, you know, gun them down and, and commit violent acts in the streets. So it's just, it's tough. You got to see a change in Peru sometime soon. And I'm hoping that they have early elections and that they, they vote someone else in that could possibly be a benefit to the people. And you, and you mentioned the early elections, Jimmy, but there has been a demand amongst the citizens for new elections and things like that. And there's been a refusal in some parts of the current government to hold those elections, or at least in the moment when Castillo dissolved the Congress initially that in the events that led to his impeachment, he said he was going to rule by edict, I think for a period of nine months, if I'm correct, before allowing a new constitution to be made in elections following after that. So... I think it's hard to say in a lot of ways of like there should be elections going forward in Peru, but is that only going to cause more violence or is that going to cause less violence? We don't know the answer to a certain extent. I just got we've had a good discussion, guys. I want to kind of have a couple of final questions so you both can frame going forward, both internationally and domestically, what you expect. So first, I'll turn to you, Emmett, and ask what do you think will happen in the future? I know you've already kind of touched on it. But if you want to expand on that anymore, 
And in your opinion, what is the best path forward for the people of Peru? Well, I would like to talk a little bit about not just Peru, but also Latin America as a whole and the future of this wave of leftist leaders, left-wing governments that have been elected in the last few years. It really, a lot of liberal or progressive people in the West or in the developed or, you know, the Western world have, have been very hyped up about these leaders, but the numbers just don't really show that this is a permanent wave. It seems to be mostly a reaction, at, like I said, to the recession caused by COVID-19 and the social upheavals that were related to that. But these new presidents who have been elected, such as in Mexico, Colombia, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, have not been very popular, have not been very successful since taking office. In fact, the Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, who's very young, very hip guy, he's only got a 33% approval rate right now. He's probably not going to be back next election cycle. Argentine President Fernandez, another hip left-wing leader, 8% approval. No chance, no absolutely zero shot of getting elected again. So I think that once these current terms of these leaders run out, I think they're going to be seeing a lot more either center-right or even possibly far-right, like Bolsonaro, leaders come back in Latin America. And I think that the West should be bracing itself for that. As for what is the best path forward for the people of Peru, get Boluarte out of there. One sentence. I mean, there you go. That's it. I think that she has no respect for democracy. I think she's got to go. Bold opinion. Do you have anything to add on to that, Jimmy? Just real quick to, to sum it up. Emmett said it good. But I just it would be nice to see if Congress and the government in Peru can have some kind of bipartisan approach to this and, and put their interests aside because it seems like that's what's holding the reins for their decisions. In, in every government, in every president they've ousted in the last seven the last seven presidents, they've, they've had their own interests and seem to have taken that a little far. And the people are showing now that they don't want to see this anymore. It would just be nice to see if their government could can find a way to just, you know, to get this through and and help out the people because it's it's been rough to see. So, Well, this has been a great discussion. Jimmy, Emmett, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Drew. Joining me now to round out some of the news headlines this week is our news briefer, Jacqueline Perez-Garcia. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Drew. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Okay, so first, Israel targets Gaza with airstrikes after intercepting rocket attack. Second, China Foreign Ministry spy balloon over the U.S. a force accident. Third, Brazilian Senator says Bolsonaro participated in a meeting to overturn election and didn't discourage the proposed plan. Some very important headlines to cover. Let's start with the story in Israel. Sure. After intercepting a rocket attack from the coastal enclave, Israel targets Gaza with airstrikes. The Israeli Defense Forces state they targeted a chemical production site as well as a weapons manufacturing facility. They claim they are both owned by the Palestinian militant group Hamas, to which the Israeli Defense Forces hold responsible. It is unclear about any casualties, though. We can hope that there are no further outbreak of hostilities in the region. And you mentioned China's foreign ministry? Yes. After a balloon was spotted flying over the United States, suspecting it can be a Chinese spy balloon, China's foreign ministry claims it is an accident. After the United States claim it is a violation of their sovereignty, China's foreign ministry accused politicians and the media for taking advantage of this issue to slander China. 
The United States military shot down the balloon last Saturday, February 4th. An event that captured the attention of the nation and kind of sparked new rumors of reigniting the U.S.-China rivalry geopolitically. And our final story about Brazil? In a press conference, Senator Marcos Doval says he and former President Jair Bolsonaro were in a private conversation. One of the organizers was current President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva with a conversation regarding ways to discredit the recent election. Although it is said that the plot did not take place, Lula won the presidential election, leading to the January 8 riots, as some of Bolsonaro's supporters refused to accept the results. Thank you very much for coming on, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Okulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seed Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.